This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, so we work through Mark 11. And I think the interesting thing about Mark 11 is, well, when you work through, through, a, through a series in the Bible, it makes you come to passages that you wouldn't normally go to. When you take a theme, you can take all your fun stuff that you're enjoying. I'm, I'm all good for that. Uh, but when you work through Mark, as we've been doing, I have to sit, read the next bit and say, well, what, what do I think God's saying? And so it's interesting, look at some stuff that, where Jesus doesn't necessarily, at first uh, impression, kind of come out very well. And um, so I don't know what you think about Jesus. Uh, most people have, who don't, are not Christians or have got no expe- experience of church have got Jesus in one of two categories. They've got him either the, as this kind of peace and love, long-haired hippie type guy, and you hear comments on the radio, well, it's not very Christian, is it? Uh, and the implication is that to be Christian is just to be tolerant about everything, to forgive everybody for everything, and to have no sense of, of, of backbone, and just nothing ever, nothing ever affects us. He's kind of, Jesus is just kind of peace and love man. Or people have got the other side, that actually God is always angry. You know, God's never angry. Uh, Jesus is never angry. Nothing ever gets under his skin. Or God's always angry. He's angry with everybody. Usually, everybody except themselves. But, you know, the, 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 those are the two, two ideas out there. But I guess today, as we look at Mark 11, we're going to say, well, what gets Jesus really ticked off? What gets him angry? Now, in one sense, some of you, if you've been around church, you kind of know where I'm going to go. But, but I guess you'd expect Jesus to get ticked off at certain times where he's not. So, for example, uh, in John's Gospel, a lady's brought to him, having been caught in the act of adultery. And the uh, people say, well, why don't you stone her? She's been caught in the act of adultery. Jesus does not get ticked off with her. If he gets angry with anyone, he gets angry with the people who've dragged her there self-righteously. You think, well, does Jesus not care about marriage and family and adultery? Does he not care about that? Why does he get angry about that? But you think, well, he would get angry about that, but he doesn't. And certainly, I would expect that if, um, if somebody stands on my toes, I get angry. In fact, I can, I can get angry when even when people are just being neutral about me. And one of the things we have to work at in our families is to understand that people are making comments and it's just neutral. I can get frustrated and think people are having a go at me, uh, even when it's a neutral comment. So I don't know how I would be if, um, if I was false, falsely accused, if I was taken to trial, if I was uh, whipped and stripped and mocked and spat upon and crucified. My reaction would be, I, I am going to be angry at this point. And I know you would be. And when we, when, we're, when we feel our space is violated or when we feel that we're stepped upon or we feel that we're abused, we get angry. We get angry when people at work take advantage of us. We get angry when, when we, uh, other people take advantage of us. We're angry when people say things about us. But, you know, Jesus, all this stuff's happened and Jesus has been crucified and he's not angry. He's saying, Father, forgive them. Why, why doesn't Jesus get angry about that point? But yet, actually, 
In Mark 11, we find Jesus getting angry. And on one reading, it looks like he's just having a bad day. He's got up on the wrong side of bed, and uh, he's just having a go. He's going to have a go at a fig tree, and he's going to have a go at some people in the temple. He's just having a bad day. Yeah? But actually, I think we need to dig a little bit, uh, uh, bit deeper. Verse 7, uh, Jesus is entering Jerusalem on what, you know, Palm Sunday. Sort of as a king, sort of as a pilgrim, it's not quite clear to the people around what's happening. We read it, oh, they definitely recognize him as a king. But I thought, well, if they definitely recognize him as a king, well, why, where were the Romans? They would have been jumping right in, but they don't. So it's a bit ambiguous, but let's just read it. When they brought the colt or the pony or the donkey to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and while others spread branches, they, cut, they had cut from the trees. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means God saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany, across the valley from Jerusalem, with the twelve. Father, we just pray as we kind of walk this journey through with you from Palm Sunday into the temple. Pray, Lord, as we look at this passage that, that you would examine us as, it's, as this passage has examined me. So you expect as Jesus kind of rides into Jerusalem on, in Palm Sunday with all these crowds uh, gathering around, following him, you, you, you'd expect some revolution. I don't know if some of the followers, there were some followers of Jesus who were called zealots, who were definitely up for revolution. You know, they're kind of left, left-wing Trotskyites, perpetual revolution, let's bring down the Romans. Obviously the Romans had invaded Israel, uh, they were, uh, they'd put up their, their, their power base in the centre of Jerusalem, right next to the temple there was a fortress called the Antonine Fortress, which was like a big powerful garrison of uh, troops, and Jesus comes in humbly riding a, a, a colt, interestingly, uh, a colt, in this case it had never been ridden, there's hints there if you were to know it, the king's horse would never be ridden by anyone else, but Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and for some, they would have been proclaiming him as a king. For others, they might, this kind of Hosanna, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, is actually just what they said when pilgrims were going up at Passover to the Jewish festival. So it's not quite clear, is Jesus coming as a pilgrim? Is he, just, is he coming as a king? Actually, he's probably coming as both. But there were some people who would expect when Jesus comes into the Jerusalem uh, to, to be a big climax. This massive climax. Here's Jesus coming in on, on this donkey, palm branches, uh, robes laid, laid on the floor, which actually, uh, if you know your Bible, that's what they did to King Jehu. When he became king, they laid their robes on the steps of, the, of Jerusalem up to the temple and proclaimed him king. So there's kind of these hints of kingship you'd expect. Okay, it's revolution. He's coming right into the heart of kind of Roman occupation, right into the heart of spiritual center of the nation. Think, this is the moment for occupation. This is the moment it's all kicked off. He's told his disciples, if you've journeyed with us, that actually he's going to be crucified. So I think they probably expected some kind of revolution. But it's interesting, if you read the passage, it's kind of a bit of an anticlimax. It just says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. Well, oh, is that it then? So he just, he just looked around. And he says, and then because it, it's late, he goes home. Goes across to Bethany to his uh, family, Martha uh, and Mary, uh, probably lived across there. And he just goes home and thinks, well, why, why does Mark set up with this big kind of crescendo, almost like a musical kind of crescendo? You think, well, this is going to be the end. There's going to be the big bang. It's going to happen. Jesus walks back down the same path that he's walked 
Nobody's there. He's just his disciples. It's all a bit of an anticlimax. But and it, it's interesting that um, as Jesus looked around, what would he seen? I think I've got a picture. It's not. A, it's a reconstruction of the temple. It's a model. Uh, as you know, there were three. You might know there were three temples. First temple was built by Solomon. Second temple. More difficult, yeah, Ezra. Uh, and the third temple was built by Herod the Great. So this, <clears throat> this is a picture of the second temple, but the third temple would look the same. Herod the Great was a kind of like the Jewish puppet ru- ruler, and he built this temple. And there'd been, by the time Jesus was 33, they'd been building it for 40 years, 50 years, and it wasn't even done. And they still had another, ironically, that they had another like 20 odd years to go and that four years it was completed and then it was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. So this temple um, was kind of like this. So this large area with the, with the colonnades that goes all around, actually you can't see it in this model picture, but this kind of smaller bit was, not re- was the centre of the temple and this larger area was called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations and this little fence here used to have on it, if you're a foreigner or a cripple, or somebody infirm, you're not allowed in. And then up these steps, this, this gate here is called the Gate Beautiful, uh, which you hear about in Acts, actually, the, the cripples waiting on the steps by the great beauti- uh, Gate Beautiful, and Peter uh, and John, isn't it, go through and they heal him. So that in one sense, the Jews had in their head, this is the entrance to the temple, but actually this is the entrance. Th- this is the whole Temple Mount, uh, with the colonnades, and then you'd go in, and then this area here was called the court of, well, do you know the next one, anybody know, what the next people, it's kind of a hierarchy in people's, kind of, it's a bit racist really, and, and sexist, the next, t- the next t- area was the court of the women, so Jewish women, slightly better than foreign men, they could go in and could go into here, they could go in the inside courts, <clears throat> but they couldn't, um, they couldn't go further in, and then this gate here, took them through into the, the kind of uh, area which is called the court of the, the Jews, the, the male Jews. If you were a circumcised male Jew, you could go in there. And then inside the big area that's called the Holy of Holies, and the priests could go in there with a sacrifice once a year. So this is this, he would have seen this kind of thing being constructed, this massive temple being constructed. Uh, but what he would have seen, and we'll read it in a moment, he, he would have seen this large outer courtyard about the size of five football pitches, and actually you would have seen that the outer court had become this massive kind of trading floor. And when they ring the bell, chaos. Everyone's shouting, if you've seen trading places, they're all shouting and trading and buying things. They probably do more of it on computers these days. But there's this idea of this kind of trading floor. Now imagine that kind of trading floor where people are doing exchanging money. Because what happened is they'd, have, they'd bring the Roman money, which was a bit dirty because it's Roman money, and they had to change it for temple shekels, which was pure money that was pure metal, so they had to do that change. So there's kind of like a financial exchange bureau going on, so under these colonnades, people are changing their money. And then in the middle, it was like a stock market. You know, if you live in rural Wales, some people do, or near to rural Wales. You know, you've, I've been to, in Carmarthen, this kind of massive stock market of just, not stock market of trades, but stock market of sheep and cattle and rams and doves. And, and you're not talking just a few. I, I mean, if you go to the, the, the kind of stock market, it might be 200 animals maybe traded that day. This area here, on a, on a, on a, on a Passover weekend, like, which is like the big festival weekend, there might have been between 10 and 50,000 sheep in this area. 
So Jesus comes into the temple, through the temple mount, probably from this area here, comes in, and he sees this kind of crazy stock market, exchange bureau, whatever, and maybe dotted around were a few Gentiles trying to pray. Goes all around, surveys it, and then goes home. Goes across next day. So he's had a look around. It's interesting, in Mark's Gospel, this, we talked about this, about seeing in Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark is often talking about sight. And so when Jesus is looking around, it's not just a casual phrase. What he's doing is he's looking into the heart of it. It's the same thing we had a few weeks ago when he looked at the rich young ruler. It says Jesus looked at him. It's kind of assessing. So Jesus is assessing what's going on. And I guess you'd expect Jesus to feel right at home, wouldn't you, in the temple? You would, you think... This is God's temple. It's built to God's plan, God's design. I don't know about the stock market where the, uh, you know, and the animals were, were meant to be part of that. But, but they'd expect it to be God's plan. In fact, there's a story when Jesus is 12 years old, which gives hope to all parents, actually. Uh, <laughs> Mary goes to Joseph and says, uh, have you seen Jesus? And, and, and Joseph obviously does what? I thought he was with you. <laughs> I thought he was with you. Oh, no, I thought it was with you. No, you're supposed to be looking after him. No, you're supposed to be looking after him. Uh, he said, well, maybe he's with his brothers. Obviously, Mary's already checked because she's a lady and she covers that down where my, my, uh, Joseph has got no idea. You know, he's watching the football. Whatever. And they say, oh, where is he? And they walk around. We've not seen him for three days. You know the story, don't you? you, go, you go, they go back to Jerusalem and they find Jesus playing biblical quiz with the, the kind of teachers of the law. He's obviously winning the prize. We came second, didn't we, in the commission quiz, I hear? Not bad. But we did win the best tweet of uh, the boys in the hot tub. I don't know what you were doing in there, taking the picture flick, but yes, <laughs> you were outside, I'm glad to say. So it was all above board. But, you know, Jesus is playing biblical quizzes with these teachers, and they're like, well, he's amazed. And his parents go, where were you, Jesus? We were worried sick about you. And he says, mother... Don't worry, he's got that little kind of slightly confident 12-year-old but didn't sin. <laughs> and he says, of course I'd be here. This is where I feel real at home. This is my father's house. Of course I'd be here. So you'd expect Jesus to feel like I've come home, wouldn't you? But he doesn't stay there. He doesn't, oh, this is home. He goes actually to his relational connections. He goes to Martha, Mary, Lazarus, across the valley into where there's a now larger, a large hotel but where uh, the town of Bethany once was. And he or, or was. And he, he, he goes there, stays the night. Now, the interesting thing is what happens next morning. It's actually next morning. I think we've got it here under the, the text. The next day, they were leaving. So he's back from Bethany, down across the valley, Kidron Valley, and across to the, uh, back to the temple. It says Jesus was hungry. Clearly, he's not had breakfast. You know, he's, he's in a rush, not managed to shave. He's, you know, is that, I'm joking. But, you know, he's not at his breakfast, and he sees a fig tree uh, in the distance in leaf. And he goes to find out if it has any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. And then Mark makes an interesting thing, which really makes you think Jesus is having a bad day. He says, because it's not the season for fruit, for figs. So you think, well, Jesus... Hello, it's springtime, you're looking for figs. Figs come out, come out in August and September. Why are you looking for figs? Clearly, you're not going to have figs. That's what we think, isn't it? So obviously, I've done some research for you to fill you in. 
But anyway, so he finds it, he finds nothing but figs, because it's not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then Mark, who's obviously interviewing Peter, Peter says, we heard him. We heard him say that. So what's going on here? You know, as I've said, is, is, is he having a really, is Jesus just having a bad day? Didn't have his breakfast, fancies some figs. Should, no, it's not the season for figs. Goes looking at the tree, there's no figs. Curses the tree. In fact, Bertram Russell, clever kind of British philosopher, said, I can't believe in Jesus who curses trees. The bottom line is Bertram Russell won't believe in Jesus, whatever Jesus did, but that's another point. But it looks like Jesus is like, nah, where's my breakfast? Bah! Right, on we go. But, but you think, well, that's not really how Jesus kind of carries on. So actually, I, I kind of read a little bit, and you, you need to have a little bit of a horticulture lesson and a little bit of a Bible lesson to understand what's going on. So the horticulture lesson is as follows. My understanding when I read about it is that when the, when the figs are, uh, are ripe and picked in, in September, they pick, they pick them off, and then what happened is that the, 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 there would just be kind of a place where they'd pulled the fig off in the spring. There'd be this bud. So sort of through the winter, but just a little bud. And then in the spring, starting in sort of February, March, April, they'd grow these little berries. So it's got these little berries. <clears throat> and what would happen is that often you could eat those berries. They were kind of, it's interesting. We had a, a word about fruit, a bit of sweet, figs are a bit like that. And, but, but these early berries were quite sweet, quite nice. So Jesus goes to the tree looking for these early berries... And they're not there. It's just leaves, which is what you'd expect. And so what happens is, he's not looking for these big figs that you find at the end of the season. He's looking for little kind of berries that just kind of gather on these nodules here, and to eat those. And the fact that those little berries were there are a sign that there's fruit to come. Yeah? You understand what's going on? But you could eat them at the time, but if you left them, they'd grow into full figs. So that's the kind of horticultural lesson. It was reasonable for Jesus to go and say, I want this early fruit. And if you uh, do a Bible search for, for figs and early fruit, one of the things in the Song of Solomon, there's this idea about this early fruit was really delicious. He talks about his wife as the early fruit of figs. Small and rather tasty. But let's not get into that. Okay, so that's the kind of horticultural lesson. No, there's a lot more I could say, Vic. I'm just leaving it hanging there. Okay. And so, so that's the kind of horticulture. But the Bible lesson is, is figs are really, really interesting because actually, I think there's some verses here, Andy. Let's just pick, pick them up there. In Hosea 9, somebody read from Hosea. What chapter was it, expand? Ooh, you're an early in the spirit, but never mind. Okay. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, Hosea 9. This is what God said about Israel. When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors or your forefathers, it was like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. Wow, that's exciting. Early fruit in the fig tree. I feel excited. So God's saying, Israel, you're like the early fruit of a fig tree. Do you get that? So this fig tree is not just a fig tree. It's standing for something else. It's standing for Israel. And then interesting, if you read about kind of when, when things were going well in Israel, you get this phrase. It occurs more than once, which is why I've not referenced it. It says, everyone would sit under their own vine, uh, under their own fig tree. It was like summer holidays. You know, we had a, we sat and, we had a, a, a cottage in France. Um, 
it's free actually, so but we'll tell you where it is, uh, just in case you book it up instead of us. Uh, but we had this cottage in France, and it had this kind of nice terrace with vines under, and there's something kind of nice in the hot sun, just sitting under the under the vines and the sort of bunches of grapes. It wasn't figs there, but it was a sign of kind of blessing. But when things were going bad, and you can find a few of this. That, that, that there was something that happened to the fig tree. So Jeremiah 8.13, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There'll be no grapes on the vine, and there'll be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I've given them, the fruit I've given them, will be taken away. So you get this idea. So it's actually, when, it's in, when there's lots of fruit and lots of figs, that means God's blessing. When there's no fruit, that's God's judgment, okay? And actually, the picture is a fig tree of Israel. So you're up to speed? Okay. So it's interesting. So Jesus comes looking, doesn't he, for those early fruit. He comes looking for that delicious early fruit, and he finds nothing. So what he does is he doesn't curse the tree. He just tells the truth about it. The truth about it is, no one's going to ever eat figs from you again. Why does Jesus make that comment about the tree? What's Jesus' reaction to this tree? So he's looking for fruit, just finds leaves. Anybody want to play? Sorry, my teacher, school teacher in me does like to ask questions to keep you out there. Um, yeah, it could be that, but you're going ahead of yourself. Thank you. There's something. Yeah, 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 it was a good answer. I'm going there in a moment, yes. Yeah. The thing is, the tree is a fake. The tree's a fake. It's called a fig tree, but actually it's just a leaf tree. It's a fake. Jesus doesn't like fake. He gets angry, frustrated at fake. So as I'm preparing this, and I'm thinking, oh, that's a difficult one. But actually, I, I, I just wrote here, how often do, do we, do I, do churches, do Christians look very leafy and full of life? And it's, our, it's brilliant what, what was brought earlier. But when Jesus examines us, there's no fruit. And I thought, oh, I could do that. I could sometimes look very spiritual, leafy, full of life, growth even. But there's no fruit. And actually, as Jesus unpacks the story, as we walk through the story, we're going to find, well, what are the kind of litmus tests of, of, of what Jesus is looking for, for fruit? Clearly, he's not looking for me to be budding little fig tree things. He's looking for something else. And so, actually, in this story, Jesus is examining. He comes to the fig tree looking for fruit. What has he done in the temple the day before? He's gone examining, looking. He's looking for fruit. So pass is not a judgment, but a, a statement of truth. You'll never, ever, no one's going to eat figs from you again. And he walks on. Now, I don't know whether the disciples were as sharp as Paul. Uh, maybe they hadn't been working through Isaiah and Jeremiah. and whatever. I don't know whether they picked up that there's a significance about the fig tree or not. I don't know. They maybe just thought, well, that's an interesting incident, and never thought, and didn't think about it. He obviously didn't like to ask Jesus, because he'd say, well, have you never read Hosea? And he said, well, I'm working for my Bible in a year, but I always never get to Hosea. <laughs> and he'd I'd dip out by the time we get to Exodus. So we don't know what's going on. But then it becomes quite clear, because Jesus then goes into the temple. Let's put it up, Andy. On reaching, the t- on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, 
and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry their merchandise or their sacrifices through the temple courts. And he taught them and he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. As we said, we'd expect Jesus to feel right at home in the temple, but actually we find him at his most angry. Angry but not sin. Sometimes good to be angry about bad stuff. That's okay. So Jesus reacts by kicking over the, t- kicking over the tables, scattering the coins. John's account has him making a whip and whipping people. You know, he's just, it's just, whoa, Jesus is completely out of character with you. He's cross. Because what does he see in the temple? He sees all the things that look very leafy, but there's no fruit. There's lots of activity. Thousands of sheep, loads of sacrifices, money being changed, people doing religious prayers. But actually, he finds it's just a fake. He quotes from Isaiah 56, which don't put it up yet, Andy. But Isaiah 56, he says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The first chapter of Isaiah starts with God's view of what the temple's like. So it should be there. Is it there, Isaiah 1? This is what it says in Isaiah 1. This is what, this is what God says a long time before Jesus, Jesus arrives at the temple. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I've had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. 250,000 sheep just on one Passover. Josephus writes that, the historian. He says, I've got no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies and your appointed festivals. I hate... Oh God, that's not very nice. I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I'm tired of them. I'm weary of them. Think, oh God. Is, is, is God against sacrifices? No, because he set it all up. What's the problem? What's the problem? It's all leaves. They're going through the motions. This is what I think. They're going through the motions. There's no sense of engagement with God. You know what can happen? And I, I don't say this to be to be rude about a particular church group. It's just my observation of my encounter with that group. I worked in a Catholic school and uh, we would do Mass every week. The whole school would do Mass, 900 pupils, packing into the hall. We'd do Mass every week. And, uh, and I found that, that you know, there's a lot of truth in the Mass. You know, Jesus is mentioned, the cross is mentioned, the body, the blood, the wine is mentioned. There's, truth in the, there's a lot of truth in that. But actually, when you talk to the kids, it wasn't like the, the Mass was a sense of, let's, let's press through to Jesus. The Mass was an end in itself. I've taken the Mass, so I'm all good. And I think that's what's happening in the temple in Jerusalem. They've just got the sacrifices as the end in themselves. They've just got doing religious activities as the end in themselves. They've just got doing church, as it were, as the end in themselves. They've just got coming as the end in itself. They've got giving their money, uh, which some of you do, as an end in themselves. They've, just, they've got kind of engaging in the busyness of religious stuff as an end in itself. And it's not an end in itself. It's what? What are we here for? 
We're here to find him. So we can get lost in the, and I can do it. Change venue, change this, change this, change And I think, we can get lost in the, in the leafiness of it all. And there's no fruit. In fact, in Isaiah 29, uh, God says this prophetically. These people come near to me with their mouth. And they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is me is based on merely human ideas and rituals that they've been taught. They've just been caught up in the, in the rhythm of the liturgy in the moment. And we've got our own rhythms and liturgy. And it's just not there. There's no need for God. And actually, there's an interesting kind of test. And then I thought, ooh, I don't want to do this one. But the interesting test is, what does he say about my house should be a house of prayer? So it doesn't necessarily mean that we have more prayer meetings, or this is a kind of like, I need to keep a much stronger register who comes to the prayer meeting. I'm going to do do that, but I'll tell you. No, I don't. (laughs) But, you know, that, that we need to have those things, and we have just leafy prayer meetings. But actually, there's something about prayer. As I'm preparing this, and it was kind of find it hard to pull it out of myself as to preach it. But but actually, there's something about prayer that says what? Prayer is the ultimate expression of a life dependent on God. Jesus finds none of that in the temple. They rely on the sacrifices. They rely on the rhythms. They rely on the cultural stuff. They rely on the community. They rely on all those things. But there's not a sense of I want you. I want you. They've got noisy lips, but hearts far from him. And the activity of the temple covers up for the worst type. It covers up some greed, some kind of exploitation, some what's in it for me. So these traders are in it for them. They're in it for money. But people can do religion for all kind of reasons. For influence and for power and for a sense of self kind of righteousness. We can do it for all kind of the wrong reasons. But even just... If that's not what where we are, it's not obvious I'm making money by trading, I'm making money by swapping, uh, selling temple sacrifices. We can just go through the motions. We can just go through the motions. We're just doing it. Ideas thought, thought by men, taught by men. We don't come with our hearts. I'm not saying that's for us, but I'm saying that's what they encountered here and it might be for you. Their religious activity, and I told this to a few people, and I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, is they're functional atheists. Obviously, an atheist doesn't believe that God exists. A, without God, theist. But, but functional atheists, what do they do? They believe but don't believe. They, they live as if God, they say God is sovereign, that they depend on him, that he's what they need, but we live with all different agendas. All different stuff. We, we live with, with concern about everything else. We, 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 we're concerned about the comfort and ease of our life. We're concerned about our position. We're concerned about what people said. We're concerned about this and that and this and that. And actually we just have lost the dependency on God. So I know for me, and I'm not against planning, I can plan so much. But actually I get to the point sometimes all my planning and thinking and working it out, there's this gap. And I try harder to close the gap. I mean, you might get that in your circumstance. You might think, I'll do all this, do all this, do all this. And actually, you know, don't judge me because I know you're like this. But there's that gap. And you think, well, I can't just close. I can't close that gap. That gap's there for what? 
I need to depend on you. And I always say to people on the Alpha Course, you know, you can get so far working it out, but there's this gap called I depend on you. I, I step out of the boat and walk on the water. I, 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 it's you. That gap's called faith, isn't it? And at the bottom of this passage, that's where Jesus ends up. So the then sense of prayer, if you don't pray, and you all feel bad at this point. Maybe one or two of you feel self-righteous, but then you should feel bad for feeling self-righteous. But you all feel, I could pray more. One guy said this, prayer is the proof and privilege of sonship. What does it prove about me? Do I feel it's a privilege? Am I really dependent on God? Or am I going to try and work it out? And there's a sense where I can be full of leaf and you can be full of leaf uh, and, and actually there's no fruit in there and that, that makes God mad. So that's one sense. What's our prayer like? And we're not sort of saying, well, I'll, you know, because what I can do is I'm doing really well with my Bible reading. What, we're in February now? I think I'm on, on track. My wife's doing a different one because we like to be different, even though I've said, let's all do the same. Uh, <laughs> you know, and we're working through. But, you know, Nathan said, oh, I just read that today. I just read that today. And I'm, I think I'm doing good. But, but I, I have, I've got to keep saying, Howard, slow and pray. Am I dependent on him? I'm clocking up the hours. You know, I've got to do 15 minutes to be a half day. You know, if I did an hour, then God would really love us. Really love me and the church. If I did two hours... No, it's not about clocking it up, it's about he wants my heart. Five minutes of heart engagement is better than an hour of ritual. But, but there's more than that that's going on. There's more than just that little test. What's your prayer life like? I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, he, he used to go to a church in South Africa of a th- uh, nearly a thousand people. Great church. And he was with us in Manchester and we used to get like 25 to our prayer meeting. And he'd say, you know, we've got 1,000 in our church, we get 25 to our prayer meeting. He said, I feel bad about that. And I said, why is it we're like that? And it's not about attending the prayer meeting. Please, that's not what I'm saying. I'm glad I've done it after the prayer meeting so you don't just all come out of guilt. But there's a sense God is called. He calls us out across the waters. Come on, come on. It's me that you need. It's me that you want. I'm not closing the gap. I'm gonna, you're going to have to depend on me. So one of the things that's interesting, and this is not on my notes, and so probably shouldn't say it, but actually one of the things that I felt about the finance was that, that you can trust in the method. Well, if we have the buckets, we have enough buckets, and we have the envelopes on the chairs, and all of these kind of things, then, then, then the finance will come. And it was great. Steve Booth in the Dust Deacons meeting says, you know, it's a heart issue. So I thought, am I trusting my method? I'm going to trust God. So I thought, no, I'm going to trust God. We're going to put it at the back. I'm going to trust God to touch your heart. And if it's empty, it says something. But actually, it's not me banging around isn't going to sort it out. The gap in our finances isn't going to be sorted out by me banging you and pushing you and cajoling. I've tried not to do that. Or even secretly frustrated. I say, God, we depend on you. Yeah? We depend on you. And that's in your own personal finances to say. Okay. So the, but actually, Jesus is pushing another test. Nearly done here. Jesus is pushing another test. He says, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. Now what did we see? Put that uh, temple picture back up, Andy. What we saw was that the, the nations were outside. 
The Jews didn't even think this was the temple. This was just like a courtyard, the place, like, you know, in our hallway, when you come to G1 food, where you put your most mucky shoes. It's not really part of the house. This is really the part of the house. These people aren't even part of the house. The lame and the blind and the not really included uh, aren't part of the house. Now, what did, what do you think that the, the Jews thought the Messiah would do when he came to the temple? He would kick out the foreigners kick them out. Kick out the lame and the blind and definitely the Romans. Let's kick them out. They're not allowed in there. Let's get them out. That's what they do. Let's cleanse it. Let's get them out. Let's have a nice tight huddle for ourselves. Let's have a little nice religious God's people huddle. But those people, let's get them out. And he thought that the, the Messiah would come to do that. But what does he do? He stops the sacrifices. It says he stopped them bringing the merchandise through this door and into it. Stop! Turn the tables over. Stop! Why? Because this place here is supposed to be open for people who don't know, who aren't part of God's people. And a big litmus test as I'm finishing this and I'm praying this, I'm thinking, God, what are you saying? I think he's saying... How missional are you is a litmus test of whether there's fruit. Prayer. Some people think, yeah, I'm a quiet contemplative. Yeah, I'm good on that. Some people, I'm an activist. I love mission. But actually, he's asking both. Intimacy with God and passion for his name. We sang that song that filled me up, burned me for the world, or whatever it was. (laughs) What was it called? For, for the sake of the world, by unlike a fiery meal, just edit that little bit out of the podcast. <laughs> but what does God burn for? He burns for those outside of here. This is what Isaiah says. We're quoting Isaiah, aren't we, in this? Because Jesus sends us there with his fur. Isaiah 56, I've, I've selected some verses. It says, let no foreigner, no Gentile, no outsider, who has committed himself to say, I'm going to come and find God. The Lord won't say, the Lord will surely exclude exclude me from his people here's an interesting one I'll, I'll ask you the question in a minute let not the eunuch let's not develop that say I am a dry withered tree it's hmm. interesting isn't it what we've just had to them I will give that's the eunuch the person who's in one sense in Jewish eyes incomplete broken damaged the foreigner who shouldn't be in there I will give them my temple and its walls these I will bring into my holy mountain. He's going to bring them right into the holy of holies and give them joy in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That that's the heart of God. If you have caught the heart of God, if you are a fruitful person, the fact is you will bear fruit missionally. And I'm looking at myself. Think, oh. Jesus cleanses the temple and purges the temple to get to the heart of it, it's about prayer and intimacy and closeness with God. And it's about lives shaped around that. So what tables does God, what furniture does God need to turn over in your life? What money does he need to chuck out? What things does he need to take a whip to, to get us to realize it's not about us. It's about him and them. The chief priests and teachers of the law, when they heard this, they thought, we're going to kill this guy. This is revolutionary. You might feel the same about me this morning. But they feared him. But the whole crowd were amazed at his teaching. This is upside down. 
This isn't turned in, let's gather all together, let's huddle all together to be church. This is turned out. This is about me and my stuff and my comfy life. This is turned out. Let's land this then. Now, I would say, and I'm not good, but I think if he looks under the leaves in God first, there's lots of little great buds around. There's lots of little great buds of faithfulness and open, honest discipleship. There's lots of great buds of missional reaching out to God. Do you believe that? But also there's a few twigs here and there where that's not the case. And the word came this morning, in it almost quoting John 17. I'm thinking, Father, thank you. John, not sorry, John 17, John 15, because this is what God says in John 15. We'll just read it and we're almost done. Remain in me. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. I mean, that word remain is make a home. Be at home with me. Dwell with me. Be close with me. Be intimate with me. And I'm going to be close and homely and relational with you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. We're trying, oh, fruit, fruit, fruit. It must remain in the vine. It's got to dwell there. Neither can you bear fruit unless you dwell in me. If you would dwell in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Lesson about fruit from here is what? Where does fruit come from? It comes from just being with him, doesn't it? That's why the one litmus test is that quiet place. Yeah? If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. If you remain in me, and my words remain in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Showing, me, showing yourself to be my disciples. Who is committed to our fruit? The Father. He's committed for his namesake. He's committed to us being fruitful for his namesake. He's committed to us being God's people for his namesake. He's committed to bearing fruit. And then he says at the end of this passage, and he's, in the end of John, and he says at the end of this passage, I'll just read it and then ask you some questions. It says, When evening came, the disciples went out of the city. So there's been all this turmoil. And in the morning they came along and they saw the fig tree had withered to its roots. Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed, or the fig tree you judged, has withered. And he says, have faith in God. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, I said to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. It's not just saying, we name it, claim it, frame it, saying, actually, God is looking for us to be dependent on him. So that means there's an expectation that comes, you say, if I'm dwelling in him, and that's what we want to do, and, and if I'm committed to God's cause and God's mission, there will be fruitfulness. We are to expect fruit. We are to ex- when we pray, we are to expect what? God will answer. We are to, when we, we're not going to pray for those prayers that we can do ourselves. We're going to pray, God, I'm desperate for you. Will you answer that? We've got to expect to answer. When we, we've got to expect that God will change our character. 
Some people say, I can never change. This is me. I'll never change. But actually, we can expect God to change our character. Why? Because he wants us to show, to have fruit. We can expect in our lives for people to see the delicious little early fig fruit in our life and say, what is it about you? I mean, she's not here today, but a lady had just become a Christian at church uh, and she was in the school gate. And somebody said, what, what happened to you? There seems to be like a peace about you. There seems to be something about, amazing about you. And she said, she hadn't really articulated it before, she said, I've become a Christian. And that's a little fruit, the little fruit, isn't it? It's not like, well, she's very figgy. You know, it's obvious. There's a little fruit, and I know that's for you, and we can find those little moments where people say, you know, there's something delicious about this place. So God's not criticizing us or pointing his finger and saying, where's the fruit? But he is warning us and saying, guys, we don't want to be cut off because we're fruitless. We want to be full of fruit. So the three litmus tests, prayer, mission, and dependency on God or faith. How we doing? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.